God created people, beginning with Adam and Eve. He created us to have a personal, intimate, engaging relationship with him. Adam would talk with the great I am, the eternal God, and they would talk about naming animals. And God would bring the animals in front of Adam and it's like, okay, you're this, you're this, you're that. They had a relationship. Adam and Eve had a relationship with the Father. They had an intimate interaction with him. And that fateful morning when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, it says that he came to them in the cool of the morning. God himself walking in the garden to connect with the people he made and wanted a relationship. And the sin of Adam and Eve broke that relationship, right? And with that broken relationship, from that point to the end of time, God has worked to reconnect us with him. We see it in the garden. An animal was slain so that skins could be made to have a covering for the sin and the shame that Adam and Eve had. And we see from beginning to end in the word of God, God chasing after people. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to, I, I don't know, he, he wasn't grandstanding or anything like that. He was on a rescue mission to take people like us and die for us to take our sins I mean, just think of your sin. Think of the things that you do and have done in disobedience to God. And then multiply that by every person who will ever exist and has ever existed. And Jesus took it all upon himself. The Lamb of God was slain for our sin so that restoration of relationship between us and the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords could be made. God loves us. Jesus loves us. And in this time that we're looking at in Israel's history, Judah's history, God is doing that still. He's been doing that. He continues to do that. During the time of Isaiah's writing here, the prophet Nahum is prophesying against Nineveh, okay? Now you remember that before Isaiah, Jonah was prophesying in Israel and Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because the Ninevites and the Assyrians, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, 
the Assyrians were brutally cruel people. They were mean. They were ruthless. They would take their captives, as I said last week, and they would take these big hooks and drive them up under their captives' jawbone, through under the tongue, and hook them behind horses and make them keep up. The, the stuff that they did was just awful. Jonah wanted them dead. He did not want them to receive mercy. But God sent this, this, this prophet to them and he didn't even say, hey, you need to repent. All Jonah said was, in 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. That's it. And the people of Nineveh put on sackcloth and ashes, so much so to the point where the king said, okay, get all the livestock, every cow, every sheep, every donkey, everybody's doing the ashes and, and, uh, and sackcloth thing. We're all going to repent. We're all going to fast. And the Lord saw the heart of the people of Nineveh and he forgave them. And Jonah said, you know what? I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to forgive these awful people. That's why I didn't want to come. God wants to save people. God loves people. We've got a guy in first or second Kings, also in Chronicles, he's the son of King Hezekiah. His name was Manasseh. And he was the worst king that Judah ever had. He was right up there with Ahab, king of Israel. Manasseh sacrificed his own children in the fires to Molech. He brought in every kind of immorality, debauchery, and garbage into Israel. He desecrated the temple of God. He was horrible. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and take him captive. And they did just that. They hooked him up behind a horse, dragged him into uh, Nineveh, made him a trophy, and they brutalized him. And in that, Manasseh, this wicked king, fell on his face before God and he repented in tears. And you know what happened? God forgave him. And Manasseh was allowed to go back to Israel, go back to Judah. And he started making changes and tearing down the idols and all that garbage that he had done. In a repentant heart, he began to serve the Lord. And he did everything he could to follow God. But the nation had turned away. His son, after him, was awful. And then comes the grandson, Josiah prophesied of back 300 years before plus and Josiah loved God he pursued God he had a heart for God that was unlike any other kings and under his reign he brought the things of God back to Judah and to Israel and a revival happened such as had never been seen since the time of Judges, that's what the Bible tells us. But when Josiah was gone, the people went right back into their idolatry. There was a cultural relationship with God. We see that in the Judges. We see that during the time of Samuel, the time of David. As long as there was a leader 
or it was the political and social thing to be following God, people followed God. But then as long as that was gone, then people followed after their own ways. And we see that in America today. When we were down in Tennessee a few years ago, and we, were, we got to know a family down there and stuff, and they were talking about cultural Christianity. The church is full of a lot of people who are Christians culturally. It's what they grew up in. They're in the Bible Belt. That's what they know. But they do not have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Just as so much of Israel and Judah, as long as the country was following, they followed. But they did not have that personal commitment to him. And they fell by the wayside. But through it all, God was chasing after people. God chased after us. And so what we're going to look at today is the story of that pursuit. We're going to look at Jesus. And I hope that as we go through this, it's going to bless you, encourage you. And if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he's right here right now wanting to forgive you of your sins, put your past behind you, and adopt you into his family as his beloved child. That's how much he cares about us. So we are going to look at the greatest rescue mission, the greatest love affair there ever was or ever will be. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61, and you will know these passages, but watch as how they are all brought together, one continuing story of love, commitment, sacrifice, redemption, and ultimately, for some, really many, judgment, okay? Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Trinity right there. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Spirit, Father, Son. This is Jesus talking. In Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads this passage of Isaiah. And the people are like, whoa, this is incredible. And he had already been healing and doing miracles. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he said to them, however, just as you were always killing the prophets, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. You all will not respect me. And it was at this time that they took Jesus, well, they didn't take him. They tried to take Jesus and kill him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. This is what he had to say. And as they had rejected Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jonah, Nahum, Micah, Obadiah, and all the other prophets, they were rejecting the great prophet, Jesus himself the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And this is the message. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, get this, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Why is he doing this? So that we can be oaks of righteousness. Oaks are sturdy trees. You know, they have longevity. Their roots go deep. And when the Lord saves us and brings us into that a relationship with him and all, and we are growing and flourishing, he is glorified. And you notice that he says in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The gospel means good news. And the reason why there's good news, the year of God's favor, is because there's bad news. The time of God's judgment. But the good news is he loves us so much that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation, the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Paul puts it this way. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not have the righteousness of God, but be the righteousness of God in him. Our righteousness is not in ourselves, it's in him. And if you ever feel like, you know, I'm not good enough, that's good because you're not good enough. And neither am I. We never were. If we were good enough, Jesus would have never had to come. But see, he came to seek and save the lost. And we'll see that more and more. But this is what Jesus came to do. He stood in that synagogue and says, this is being fulfilled right now. Now, let's go and start at the beginning of the story. Isaiah chapter 49. And we're going to look at the calling of Jesus. Isaiah 49. Verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me by name. You remember where Gabriel tells Joseph and Gabriel tells Mary his name's going to be Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua? because he is going to save his people from their sins. He's the Savior, okay? Named from his mother's womb. Verse 2. 
He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Revelation, it talks about how he comes with a two-edged sword in his mouth, the word of God. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Why is Jesus called Israel here? Because the name Israel means ruled by God. And Jesus is the epitome of that name. Okay, he has many names. And I'm not talking about, you know, names that other religions call him and stuff. He's, you know, the Lamb of God. He's the Prince of Peace. He is the true Israel. Okay, he's the Son of God, the Lamb of God. All right, this is one of his titles. And God is glorified in him. Verse 4, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. When Jesus went to the cross and when he died, Israel did not return to the Lord. The leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees were fighting God. And they crucified the Son of God. Humanity crucified the Son of God. And if you look at his ministry, it doesn't look like a lot came out of it at that time. We have the privilege of looking back over history and we see what Jesus did. And we'll see a little bit later that Jesus was able to see ahead of what would come. But his own people rejected him. The people of God, Israel, rejected him and crucified him. But he says, I'm trusting in my father. One person said it this way, that Jesus trusted God for the results. He had faith that the Father was going to do what needed to be done. Somebody, I don't know who it was, but made this comment. He said, obedience is ours, results are God's. Our job is to just obey the Father, obey the Lord. He'll take care of the results. So often I want results now, right? And we live in a society in a time where everything is results-based. You go to work. What are your results? What's your quotas? What's your, you know, widget count? What are you doing? You know, how much money do you make? How much, you know, what position do you have? Whatever it is, it's all about results. Jesus trusted the Lord God Almighty, his Father, for the results. And that's what we need to do. Going on down to verse 6, it says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen to what's said here. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's not enough for you to be the one to bring back Israel. You will be the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? The world. And thus says the Lord, verse 7, 
the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, the Messiah, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you out. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Before Jesus went to the cross, when they had the Lord's Supper, remember he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. The covenant that we have, the relationship and the security of the relationship that we have with God the Father is because of what God the Son did for us. Not because of my righteousness, but because of his righteousness. That's why we have security. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of what he's done. All the Lord has asked us to do is to trust in him Repent and live for him. He who believes on the Lord will be saved because he did the work. So we go over now. Chapter 50. We've seen the call. Now the commitment. Chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Do you ever notice how Jesus spoke to people? Not the Pharisees, okay, or the scribes, but the regular folk. He knew what to say, how to say it, even when he was correcting them for sin. Think of the woman at the well, okay? And they're talking, and he says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You said rightly, you've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Oh, I think you're a prophet. You know, oh, it's more than a prophet who's with you. But he was speaking to her and bringing out where she was at. Here's a gal who had gone from man to man to man trying to find life, joy, happiness. And she meets the Messiah. And he speaks to her in a way, and the next thing you know, this gal is following Jesus, witnessing to her whole community, and people are getting born again, you know? And she found that which we, she was looking for in Christ Jesus. Jairus, his daughter, is dead. Don't be afraid. Only believe. And he says in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. We've got a picture. When you're coming out of Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem, there's this archway and it says Talitha Kumi on it. And we've got a picture of our daughter Abigail standing underneath it because God brought her back from the dead. He knew how to speak a word to bring comfort. A woman's son is dead and they're carrying the, the burial, whatever it is, out with him on it. And Jesus goes up and he touches him. Guy gets up, goes home, you know, comforted the woman. Her only son was gone. 
He knew how to comfort people. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. What does that mean? That mean he just helped him hear? No. This is a, a phrase. When you had a person who was a servant and they wanted voluntarily to serve their master for life, they would be taken by the master to the doorpost of the house and the master would take an awl and the servant would put his ear against the doorpost and they would drive the awl through the ear and put a ring in it and that person was committed voluntarily for life to the master. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I voluntarily put my ear to the doorpost and my father pierced my ear and I am willfully my father's servant and I did not turn back. I didn't, I didn't back away. Verse six, I gave my back to those who strike. Think of this. When they unleashed the cat of nine tails on Jesus, Balls of lead, bits of bone, glass, and metal. Nine, nine strands. And with every blow, it would wrap around the back and torso and they would rip it. They open him up. In Psalm 22, he says, I can see my innards. They brutalized him. He gave. They did not force this. He said, I gave my back and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. They ripped. You know, if, if you're a man and you have little kids or you've had little kids and you have facial hair and they grab that, it hurts. You know, just pulling on your beard or your mustache, it hurts. Imagine somebody grabbing your beard and ripping it out of your face. That's what they did to Jesus. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Here is the son of God, the second person of the Godhead, and his own creation is spitting in his face, beating him with a rod, putting a crown of thorns on his head and we, we've got, Jennifer and I have, we brought, brought some thorns back from when we lived in Israel and we've got them kind of intertwined into a, into a circle. They're brutal. They are like two inches long and it was rammed into his head. This is what he committed to when he submitted to the Father. But the Lord God helps me, verse 7 Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Think of that. Jesus went into this determined. I am doing this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he committed wholeheartedly. He swept blood as he said, I'm not pulling back. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass for me. No? All right. Let's do this. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Pilate said of Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. None. He went through one, two, three, four, five trials. He went to Annas, then Caiaphas, then Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again. None of them could find anything to accuse him of. Now, this is the commitment. Jesus was committed to this. Go to chapter 52, verse 13. God is speaking. This is the sacrifice. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were as astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Think about that. Jesus was beaten to a pulp so bad, he didn't even look, I guess, human. His face was battered, beard ripped out, hit over and over again with fists and a rod, the crown of thorns. His body was flayed open, spat on, kicked, abused. Wow. You couldn't even see him as nothing more than just a, a mass of flesh. So shall he sprinkle many nations. You remember the high priest would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle the altar, the bronze altar of judgment, proclaiming forgiveness. And he would sprinkle the people with the blood of the lamb, proclaiming them forgiven. And that's what's said of Jesus here. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to this about Jesus. We've just seen the brutality that he underwent. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Think of a desert. I grew up, I grew up in Arizona, okay, Tucson. And it's cacti, not cactus, okay? If you got more than one, it's cacti. Just so you know, if you go there, you know, don't, don't embarrass yourself, okay? Say cacti, not cactuses, okay? Then know you're a foreigner, all right? But you have dirt and things that poke you, okay? But when the rains come, and you see this, this grass come out of the ground. And all of a sudden, the brown becomes beautiful. And it's like this carpet of green. It doesn't last long. But it's so beautiful to see. And in this desert of human wasteland, this one grows up in the midst of it, Jesus Christ, to bring life to the world. 
He was tender. This little, I mean, God himself, the second person of the Godhead, becomes a baby to live the human experience and be tempted just like we are and to know heartache and suffering and pain and joy and hunger and thirst and trials and know it all. He knows it. And then to give himself as the Lamb of God for us. Whoa, that's incredible. Look at this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Contrary to Hollywood, Jesus did not have bright piercing blue eyes and flowing hair and all this stuff, okay? Now, I will say this, Jesus was a carpenter. It means he worked in wood and stone. And Jesus was like, boom, okay? He was not this sissy looking milquetoast guy. He was strong. But he was common. He was average. There's nothing about him. Like, remember Saul? And it was said, oh, now that guy is a poster child for a king. Not Jesus. He was as common as he get. Alan Redpath says that we have the tendency to try to make Jesus look flashy and desirable rather than letting him be who he is and in his simplicity and humility and suffering show the love that he has for humanity. He was simple. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a familiar friend of grief, heartache, sorrow. He knows what it's like to go through tough times. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. But he was pierced. His wrists, his head, his side, his feet were pierced for my transgressions. What I did, not him. He was crushed for my iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What if somebody came to you and they brought charges against every one of us in this room? And we were going to court and we were all going to pay for what we've done. And the judge comes to you and says, okay, I got, a, I got an opportunity for you. Are you willing to take all of their crimes upon yourself and to suffer on their behalf? What would you say? I'd say no way. I got enough problems of my own. I don't need to take everybody else's on. As a mom or a dad, what if somebody were to say to you, you know what? This town, everybody has to pay for their crimes. But are you willing to give up your son or your daughter for all of them and let all that punishment go upon your son or daughter? I think every one of us would say, 
you can take a hike because that ain't happening. But that's exactly what God the Father did. That's what Jesus did for us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open up his mouth. I mean, think when he was standing before Pilate, and, and it's like Pilate says, you don't say anything? Don't you know I have the power to release you or to put you to death? Jesus says this, the only authority you have is given to you by my father. Pilate was scared. He's like, oh man, I got to figure out a way to, to release this guy. Jesus didn't try to vindicate himself or anything. It goes on, like a lamb that is sled to the, to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who even who considered or who even thought that he was cut off, killed, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who was thinking... He, when he was on that cross, who was thinking, boy, this is for the nation of Israel and for all of humanity? No, they were thinking it was him. And they made his grave with the wicked, two thieves he was on a cross between. And with a rich man in his death, he was buried into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is what God wanted to do. Paul tells us in the counsel of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it was chosen before the world even existed that Jesus would do this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see. And you see how this is like all past tense, but it hasn't happened yet? And it's saying how Jesus was going to see the outcome of this? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is resurrection stuff. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's the will of the Lord? The salvation of the lost. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. He bore our sin and he intercedes for us. Hebrews tells us right now he is before the throne of the Father. And when Satan accuses us of our sins and failures and shortcomings and screw-ups, and when we condemn ourselves, Jesus is right there going, I paid for it. He's mine. She's mine. That's why we can go boldly before the throne of grace because Jesus paid for our sins. And because of him, we stand before the Father in righteousness, his righteousness. This is like crazy. It's cool. Chapter 55, then comes the invitation. 
Come everyone who thirsts, verse 1. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. I don't have money. I, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. I purchased it for you. Remember that last supper. This is the covenant in my blood. This is my body. I'm doing this. So you come and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so, you are, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." So often we hear that passage right there quoted. Well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and they are. But in the context, God is calling out to the wicked, saying, repent. Jesus preached repentance, turning from the old life to him. You don't hear that word in churches very much anymore. You don't hear the word sin Repent and believe is what Jesus taught. Repent of your sin. And what we just read is the very reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He said, I know the way you work. We as people want to see the wicked punished, right? Now we see ourselves in different light, okay? But for the other person, we want to make sure they get their due. God's not like us. And praise God for that because I'd be in a lot of trouble if he was like me. But he's not. He loves people. He loves people. Turn over to chapter 65. And this is where we come to the judgment. All right, he's already saying, look, come to me. Repent of your wickedness, repent of your ways, come to me and I will save you. I will forgive you. I will enter into covenant with you. And listen to how the Lord says this, chapter 65, verse one. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. 
Jesus again said he came to seek and save the lost. People seek after a lot of things, but nobody seeks after God. They seek after gods or their own ways or whatever. But how can you seek after the unsearchable one? How can you know him who is past knowing? Only if he reveals himself to us. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus came. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Or it can be translated who did not call my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Go down to verse 12. I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. Over in Isaiah 63, it speaks of how the blood of the slain would spatter over his garment. In Revelation, it speaks that he comes in judgment with his robe dipped in blood. That's not a very politically correct or pleasing kind of picture. See, God is just, but he wants to give mercy and forgiveness, but somebody's got to pay for the sin. And that's what Jesus did. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Chapter 66, verse 2. That's the wicked. But this is the one whom I, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It doesn't matter if you have done atrocious things like Manasseh bad dude, like the Assyrians, the Ninevites, bad people. Yet they humbled themselves before the living God and they repented and they cried out for mercy and God forgave them and they had a second chance and they walked with them. It's the person who's humble. I need you. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not talking about being sad. It's mourning and grieving over sin because comfort will come through the salvation of Christ. Isaiah speaks a lot of comfort as God forgives his people and give, forgives the world. Verse four, he speaks to the wicked. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Verse 22. Now we're getting launched into 
after the millennial reign of Christ, okay? After the second coming. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, they will be eternal. And we see this in the book of Revelation, okay? The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the old shall pass away. These things shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, month to month, it's just going to keep going. From Sabbath to Sabbath, week to week, it's eternal. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies. This is the end of the millennial reign. Of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an, an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus speaks of this in Mark chapter 9, speaking of hell and the final judgment. God is just, and there is a coming judgment. And those who do not humble themselves before him will face his judgment and eternity in hell. People don't like to hear that, but that's just the way it is. Why would God do that? We are free to choose. That's what Jesus talks about here. That's what God talks about here. I've spread out my hands. I've called to you. I've pleaded with you. In Ezekiel, we see him saying, you know, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn back to me. He says that twice in the book of Ezekiel. I don't want to drop the hammer on you. I don't want to judge you because when God judges us, it's eternal and it's bad. See, when the, the Valley of Hinnom that's talked about here, Jesus talks about it and it's, the, it's Gehenna, hell, but it was the place just south of Jerusalem along the Kidron Valley. It was the Southern Valley and it was the waste place for the city. And a fire was kept burning all the time to burn the garbage of the city. And it was the place of filth and destruction and burning and stench and awfulness. And that's what Jesus is talking about with hell. He doesn't want anybody to go there. That's for the demons. That's why he sent Jesus, whosoever believes. God says here, the reason why I'm punishing you is because I called out to you, I gave you the opportunities, and you rejected me. We can't save ourselves. Jesus saves us. But we have to receive him. It's not just going to church, okay? Israel had that gig. People following God because it was the thing to do. It's what you grew up with. But they didn't necessarily have to personal relationship with God. 
if you're here this morning and maybe you think you're okay with the Lord because you just go to church or you're a member of a church, Scripture shows us, Jesus says in that day, the day of judgment, people are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you and cast out demons and heal and all this stuff and prophesy? And Jesus says, depart from me, you wicked, because I never knew you. I don't have a relationship with you. Why are you going to heaven? Whose righteousness do you stand upon? Is it your own? Paul said, my righteousness is not my own. It's Christ. That's how I stand before the Father. Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says that our righteousness as is a filthy garment. Okay? Now that doesn't sound too bad. And forgive me for being frank, but I'm going to give you exactly what it says. Our righteousness is as a used menstrual cloth. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. Our best is disgusting before the almighty righteous king of kings. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he took the blows to his back, the nails in his feet and his hands. That's how much he loves us. Bask in his love. Enjoy the love and the rest that we have in Christ for what he's done. If you're beating yourself up because you're not good enough, of course you're not. Stop doing it. Only Jesus is good enough. And your righteousness is in him, not yourself. Not yourself. And if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, if you've never said, you know what, I'm yours. Jesus, take control of my life. Forgive me of my sins. It's a, we're four minutes early, okay? <laughs> Afterwards, if you want, come up and talk with me. I'll pray with you and we'll get things squared with Jesus right now. We don't want to live a day without him. And he loves you to death, literally. Father, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around what we have just read. But it doesn't matter how bad we've been, how awful we've done. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He hunted down Christians, threw them into prison, and was present when they were being stoned and voted against them. And you saved that man. You saved Manasseh and so many others. You saved me. Because that's the kind of God you are. You're not like us. You're far greater and far more loving. Lord, I pray that you would bring these things to our hearts daily, that we might just fall more in love with you, and want to pursue you more, honor you more. Not because we have to, but 
Lord, what kind of love is this? May we, and please enable us to love you back to some degree that would, Lord, we're so small. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just obey me, walk with me. We want to do that. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray today is the day of salvation. And the two of you become united in the bond and the covenant of the blood of Christ forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. He loves you so much. May you walk with a pep in your step throughout the week as you've got somebody who loves you like no one else.